Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's not just good for programming. It's also great for kids doing homework. It's great for reading, great for writing, anything that requires your concentration. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments at mtcb.pwop.com. That's mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1170, with guest Mark Seaman. Recorded Thursday, July 9th, 2015. Hey, it's .NET Rocks all over again. How's it going, my friend Richard Campbell? I am causing trouble. Uh, no, really? Yes. <laughs> I, uh, we've been shooting a bunch of shows today, and I've been running around prepping stuff because I'm going to smoke some ribs. And I was very cruel, and I tweeted about it. And oh. now there is a kerfuffle online. <laughs> oh, you mean everybody wants to come to your house? Everybody wants some ribs, yes. Yeah. And, and I'm actually putting on a dinner for a bunch of the local Microsoft team. Yeah. Which I do a couple times a year, so... Yeah, it's. Uh, I shouldn't have said anything. It's kind of mean, but I, yeah. I did something similar on Facebook uh, yesterday. I I said uh, how to prepare tofu. Step one: throw it away. Step two: grill some meat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Somebody was telling me they wanted to create a product called faux tofu. <laughs> faux tofu. Yeah, it's made of meat. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and a lot of fun to say. Hey, I have something very apropos for today's show. Oh, I so love it. Roll the crazy music and we'll talk about it. All right, buddy, what do you got? For Better Know Framework today, I bring you the J programming language. Go to jsoftware.com. A new programming language? Well, it's not all that new. It was oh. developed in the early 90s by Kenneth E. Everson and Roger Hui okay. as a synthesis of APL, which is also by Everson, and the FP and FL function level languages created by John Backus. Okay. And that is right off of Wikipedia. And if it is inaccurate, I am sorry. I'm reading. So nice. I just learned about it. And um, the reason I went looking for – I, I just looked for a terse language – because, you know, this is what we're talking about. Less is more with Mark Seaman. And uh, and this came up. So it got me digging around. It, an hour flew by after I was looking at the, you know, the docs and how it works. And it's pretty cryptic and terse. But one of the examples of it, and if you go to, you know, uh, jsoftware.com, you'll see that they say, you know, unlike other languages like Java and C Sharp, uh, J is fairly easy to learn, a lot like C++. <laughs> it may give you some information about the biases of the people who put this together. Well, an APL is like one of the very first programming languages ever, right? Yeah. Like, that's going back to the 60s. That's old, old, old. So, yeah, yeah you're talking about original programmers here. 
Yep. And we'll we'll ask Mark what he thinks of Jay or if he's ever seen it or heard of it when he comes on in a few minutes. But uh, that's it. JaySoftware.com. Richard, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 1001, which we did with one Mark Seaman, where we talked about getting into the zone. Yep. And I happen to know was one of the inspirations behind Music to Code By. And that's true. And uh, Diego Iastrubny, which is a great last name, dude. Mm. I hope I didn't wreck it. Said, as a Linux user and developer, I always feel funny listening to this show. I hmm. guess that's fair. Yeah, yeah. However, I started because of the sound quality. The stereo in the intro is very nice. Oh. And the music is kind of good. Okay. Just congratulations, sir. And yeah. Somebody's complimenting your work. I keep on listening because of the geek outs, and I'm currently listening to the one on nuclear weapons. Awesome. I'm sorry about that, because that one was a bummer. It was. Uh, regarding this show, and this is the one we're talking about with Mark, I do it a lot. I mean, I have a 30-minute track travel each direction. What I do is just open the laptop and start coding for fun. I have this project that I wrote for the third time for PC, the first time with Android, and the second time for iPhone, and in those 30-minute mini-marathons. This means that in those 30 minutes, you have to get back into the zone, remember where you were debugging, and continue debugging and coding. The app is more or less done, but it took me three months. It is possible. Hmm. So he's doing that snap zone thing that Mark was talking about, which is really, I think, quite challenging. It is. I also remember that when I was young, I loved coding late at night. Hmm. This is because, and as you discussed in a previous episode, concentrating in the night is easier because you don't have as much background noise. This is something I don't get while working in an office. Right. So there you go. Linux guy. Same tricks. You know, what other, what else you can do if you want to code during the day is just build yourself a recording studio. Who would do that? And then, you know, everything's quiet all 24 seven. Except for that guy downstairs who takes the rap music, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's actually, uh, it's interesting. Right below our studio is a hip hop studio and it, it's an underground rapper. And I won't tell you who it is, but he's a very well known underground, uh, hip hop artist. And so he likes to keep a low profile. But um, the other night we were practicing with the band. And I say the band, I mean four horns and a rhythm section, like nine pieces. And we had a, we're rehearsing for Sailfest coming up this weekend. And, yeah, yeah. And I get a text, hey, you guys going to be done soon? <laughs> we had just started and it was going to, I'm like, no, we're going till 11. He goes, oh, you know, because that, that's the kind of thing what happens when you rent out a studio yep. below another studio. Yep. Yeah, you think it's going to be fun, you'll have synergy, but uh turns out... Sometimes, st- well, and he's usually been interrupting you, and now you were interrupting him. Yeah, it works both ways. But tell you what, though, he's a great neighbor, and uh I wish I wish every one of my neighbors was that cool. I, You know what? That's an awesome thing to say. For someone that you absolutely actually have in conflict, you have a lot of respect for him. Absolutely. Mutual respect. That's cool. Yep. So... Oh! So, Diego, hey, I forgot. <laughs> we were reading a comment. <laughs> Diego, you rock. I want to send you a mug. Yeah. So, I'm going to get that mug out to you right away. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks Dom or via any of our social medias. We post every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there, we'll read it, and you'll get a mug, too. And that brings us back to Mark Seaman. He is the author of Dependency Injection in .NET and the inventor of AutoFixture. He's a professional software developer and architect living in Copenhagen, Denmark, and currently an independent advisor. He enjoys reading, drawing, playing the guitar, good wine, and gourmet food. Welcome back, Mark. Well, thanks. Thanks. 
good to be back. Speaking of gourmet food. Yeah, yep. That's right. Yeah, and at NDC Oslo, Mark and I got to sneak off. Somehow he got this reservation too. What was the, I can't pronounce the name. I'm not Scandahoovian. No, no. So no, but actually, the name the name was Finnish. It was called Maimo. Um, so oh. apparently, it means Mother Earth or something. They told us, and I, you know, these these are the things you can tend to forget. There's actually a Finnish <laughs> name without a K in it. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> but it, but it has more vowels than it has consonants. So yes. It, so it still fits the pattern. Okay. There you go. <laughs> Very good. Very good. And, and I guess it was like a haute cuisine kind of you know oh, yeah. one square inch Absolutely. of food per course, kind of twenty thing. courses. We had 26, I think. Yeah. 26? Yeah. <laughs> oh wow. And wow. and wine pairings all along the way. At the end, I was not stuffed full of food. It was the right amount of food, but I was pretty drunk. <laughs> okay, enough about our cavorting all over the world, which <laughs> I'm sure both intrigues and angers our listeners. But uh, So um, this is uh, Copenhagen week here at .NET Rocks, um, starting off with, with Mark. Tomorrow we'll be talking with uh, – Kenneth Ochenberg, but uh, and we oh. started that cool. show that Richard brought up, uh, you know, that spawned Music to Code by. We started that by talking about all the, if you'll pardon the expression, the Great Danes of programming. <laughs> and uh, how is how is Denmark today? Denmark is fine. It's it's summer. It's been very warm. Now it's a little bit more Danish in the um, type of weather, um, but still light out at nine o'clock. So that's that's pretty nice. Beautiful. So had you heard of yeah. J Software? I I haven't heard about J no, but I have heard about APL. I did a little bit of APL like twenty years ago, mm -hmm. and it's a strange, strange language. Um, have you ever seen it? No, I can't say that it's, I have. It, it's it's. Basically, what they did was that they tried to make a language that was as terse as possible. So mm. you don't really have functions. Um, you just have symbols. So they ran out of, you know, things to call things. Uh, so they started out with all the Greek letters then. And then they ran out of Greek letters as well. And then they, they just started inventing symbols. So you have an mm. operator, for example, that is three circles stacked on top of each other. And you have another operator that's just a triangle with, you know, with the, um, with the point pointing up and so on mm. and and then you're sort of supposed to be able to to do that and it's it's kind of funny it's not that hard to write small programs in but it's totally impossible to read afterwards yeah and so that's what so that's <laughs> <laughs> and i guess you know that illustrates the danger of you know less is more is that you can have too much less can you can't you oh absolutely and but what i really wanted to talk about today is um more like if I may quote Martin Fowler, he said once, you know, any fool can write a code that a computer can understand. Good programmers write code that a human can understand. Amen, and, brother. Yeah. And that's really what I'm after here today um, when we are talking about less is more because I've, I've been spending a lot of time recently thinking about what can we remove from programming languages or what can we remove from the software development process or whatever the, it is that we do to produce software, what can we remove in order to make things easier to understand because you know when we create a lot of tools we also create a lot of complexity so if we can remove some of that complexity instead of adding more complexity to solve the complexity we already have i think we, we would have a, a situation where we actually benefit from that but it's really difficult to do um, but it's kind of interesting to to think about so the first thing that comes to mind is use a functional language 
Oh, that's uh, that's that's a very now. I think you're almost jumping to conclusions here. Maybe, but, um, maybe. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm I'm not sure that that is the end goal. I mean, we probably I think we're still in the very early process of discovering what programming is all about. Mm-hmm. Although it seems like everything has been discovered in the '60s or before, mm-hmm. um, but still, um, I still. I think we're still learning how things are going to pan out. And it's not certain that functional programming will be the future. We thought that object-oriented programming would be the future 10, 20 years ago. Mm. Um, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It doesn't look like it is at the moment. But, you know, I think it would be um, hubris to say that um, that FP is going to be the the ultimate style. Well, That's probably if, be if I can explore that point yeah. a little bit more before sure. you move on, um, <laughs> the things that I've learned, about, and I'm not a functional programmer, trust me, um, but the things that I've learned about it that have impressed me is the ways that it um, sort of prevents you from shooting yourself in the foot to use the Oh, absolutely, term yeah. Here. Yeah. Yeah, so, so one of the things that we can take away and that functional programming makes very obvious that we can take away is this idea about uh, mutability. So in object-oriented design and in procedural code, we tend to have mutable state. You know, you have, and that's how a computer works. So, so it's, it's not unreasonable that we grew our understanding from, about software from that. Because originally, if you think about how a processor works, you have some registers and you put stuff into those registers and you change the values that you have in those registers. So everything a computer does is mutating state. So creating an abstraction on top of that, that disallows mutating state is very unnatural. Mm. So, so it's not so, it's not difficult to understand why we didn't start with that because, um, the level of, of abstraction requires some processing power as well in order to make that flow nicely. And functional programming just wasn't really a practical thing when you, um, when you wanted to use that in back in the sixties and even the seventies, because there's, there's just too much computation involved in, in making that happen. And but now we have, you know, much more. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I was going to make your point and the, the, the processors got faster and it became more viable. Yes. yes. So now we actually are at the point where the theoretical implications of functional programming, which are very old, uh, but now they're starting to become practical because we can say, well, the processing power required to do a little bit of, of, you know, you have to do copying of values instead of just changing values on the spot. And that requires a little bit more memory and that requires more garbage collection and so on. So it can never be quite as fast as the mutable based equivalent, if you will. But on the other hand, sometimes, you know, code written in a functional language can be so much clearer to understand. And then it's also much easier to parallelize that now we have this multi-core um, paradigm shift. It actually becomes becomes possible to write code that executes faster because you can reason about the way that you can parallelize it in a way that you couldn't do with mutation-based code, if you will. So I think I hear a whole bunch of listeners out there who have, you know, been listening <laughs> to us beat the functional, well, our guests beat the functional drum so many times on this show going, whew, okay, maybe I can, uh, you know, maybe I can do less with what I have instead of having to move to a completely new way of programming. I mean, absolutely, you can do that. I mean, there's a lot of, there's lots of things that you can do in C-sharp, for example, that if you constrain yourself you could actually make your code simpler just by not using those things in, in G-sharp. So let's go back 
a long time ago, there was, um, if you go back to 1968, so that's before she Sharp, but if you go back to 1968, uh, Dijkstra wrote this paper called Go to Statement Considered Harmful. Mm-hmm. And uh, back then we didn't have, you know, social media. So the discussion about whether or not that was true or not took 20 years instead of just a couple of months, mm-hmm. uh, flame wars on, on Twitter, whatever, you couldn't do that back then. Um, <laughs> But it seems that nowadays we pretty much agree that go-to statements are not particularly useful and we don't really have them. But you have the keyword in C-sharp. So when was the last time you used the go-to keyword in C-sharp? I have never used the go-to <laughs> right? keyword. There, there you C-sharp. go. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So, so, you, you, so you definitely can avoid using it and your code is probably better off by not using the go-to statement. But it's there. So it's perfectly legal from a compiler's perspective to use it, but you just don't do it. And you, and you, we can hopefully agree that that makes your code better. But the the we've talked to this through this a number of times. This idea of there's techniques that keep your code safe, and not using the go to statement is a technique. Sure, there yes. are are frameworks to make your code safe, and that would be something I guess would suppress the go to statement or would raise a warning around it. And then there's platforms for safe code where GoTo just doesn't exist. Yeah, so that's the thing. You you have other languages where the GoTo keyword doesn't exist. I actually don't think it exists in Java. Um, I think the reason it exists in, in C-Sharp is because C-Sharp has the ability to do very low-level pointer manipulations and, and lots of interop with the Windows operating system. And and it might, you know, it may it was probably deemed... A good idea at the time. I don't know. <laughs> but yes, if you can have a language that doesn't allow you to do that, that's obviously the easiest uh, way to get rid of those things. And this sort of backs into this whole, you know, why is these, why are these functional approaches powerful for parallelism? Because immutable state passing function calls are natural boundaries for threats. So you don't have to declare the threat. It doesn't have to be multi-threaded, but should the, host environment that's executing the code recognize an opportunity for parallelism because it knows it has this clear thread boundary and this clear set of immutable state it doesn't have any concerns about actually parallelizing sure i mean multi-threaded code is not difficult at all what's difficult is to make things thread safe if you have mutable state right And, and and you have multiple threads accessing the same mutable state if you don't have mutable state it's you know it doesn't matter that things actually run on multiple threads right. because you know there's no um, there's there's no conflict um, possible. Yeah, it just doesn't um, it doesn't actually matter. And, and if you do pure functional programming, you have most of your all of your design will be what we call embarrassingly parallel. I mean, it's just like it, it you can just put it on parallel threads if you will, and have everything ex- executing in in parallel if you want to because because of that. Um, what can I say? Because of that trait. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by the bug-crushing superpower that is Raygun. If you're wanting to detect and diagnose errors and crashes in your software, 
even find problems that you didn't know existed to improve your software, then Raygun may be perfect for you. Add a few lines of code to your application, and in minutes, you'll get real-time error reports with all the information you need to fix bugs fast. You can even hook it up to your team chat, bug tracking, and development workflow tools. Raygun covers all major web and mobile programming languages and platforms, including .NET, the full Xamarin stack, JavaScript, and many more. Go check out Raygun today at raygun.io and say hello for us. Seems to me we did a show, Richard, and I can't find it. I was just looking for it while you guys were talking there on removing features to make you think uh, better about and, and more creatively about how to solve problems with less features. And uh, and I, for the life of me, I can't remember. Do you remember which one that was, Richard? Yeah, no, I couldn't name the show, but it, I think it was. We were talking about things like katas, and like, okay, you know, you know, you could solve a given kata. Now solve it without using an if statement. Exactly. Right? Yes. The, as as I, a way I, to I, stretch your mind, it was more about you know this, this exercising, having a deeper understanding of programming. Like the, this is always this concern. Sort of the amateur level of programming is you can just make it work, and that's all you know. And pushing yourself into expert is actually solving it with multiple techniques, multiple languages, like really understanding a problem mm -hmm. as a whole, but also you know broadening your arsenal of technique. Exactly. And that's, that's quite an interesting thing to, to try to do. A couple of years back, there was uh, something called the anti-if campaign. And it, <laughs> <laughs> that's, it, it just it, that's it. That's what it, it was solving. Yeah. Remove the if statement. And yes. if you can do it without if you can, you're a real programmer. Well, you, I don't know, I don't know if that's true, but you can learn some new techniques. Yeah, and that's yeah, really yeah. what's interesting by doing Carter. Right. So, for example, um, one of the things that you can do instead is to use the visitor pattern, uh, which is a very object oriented thing to do, um, also known as double dispatch. And that can actually save you from doing if statements. It's very, it's a very verbose approach to avoiding if. So, hmm. probably not a good, you know, tool in your everyday toolbox, but, you know, kind of interesting to pull out that very exotic tool from time to time to say, well, okay, we can do this. There's also another way called table-driven methods. If you ever uh, read Steve McConnell's Code, Code Complete, yes. uh, oh, yeah. that, is an old, that is an old book, and it doesn't at all talk about functional programming, or almost not, I think. Mm -hmm. I, um, but it talks about this thing called table-driven methods, and basically what you have is that you say, for lots of types of pro uh, of problems, you can actually pre-compute the answer to, you know, for a given input or for a range of inputs. So instead of having an if statement where whenever you get that input, you just have a table where you look it up. So you sort of have, you know, your input just serves as a, as a key into your table, mm. and then you have your pre-computed answer. Nice. And, yeah. Yeah. And you, that works great. And you can take that... And, and nowadays, with most modern languages, what you can do instead of putting a pre-computed value into a table or a dictionary, what you can do is you can put a function, function into that. function, that's just what yeah. I was thinking. Or, or a delegate. If you don't want to do a functional programming, you just put a delegate in. You can do that in C Sharp. Sure. I believe you can even do that in Java today. I hear, I hear rumors of that anyway. <laughs> what a brilliant idea. Um, I mean, it, that's just a great way of solving a problem that doesn't use – yeah, wow. Yeah. So, so what you can do is you, you can create a dictionary and in each of these dictionaries, you just have, you know, a delegate. Delegate. And, and then you just pull that delegate out of the, 
out of the um, out of the dictionary based on the input value you have, and then you call it, and it does the, some computation for you. No if statements. So that's another way to approach that. But now we're getting very very close to what we in functional programming know as pattern matching, mm-hmm. where we you know we just have a instead of instead of doing that you know and setting up all of those objects or data constructs behind the scenes. We just have that baked into the language. So you see that in F-sharp. You also see that in Haskell mm-hmm. where you just say, well, the, if the input falls into this category, then this is the function to execute. And if the input falls into this other bucket, then, you know, do this. Erlang as well, right? Erlang does that as well, yeah. Um, Erlang is not strongly typed, though. So its pattern matching is, as far as I remember, only based on the number of arguments so it can distinguish between you see if there's you know one number well, one argument then there you know it matches one um, case if there's two values in the incoming arguments it, it matches another case and so on as far as i remember anyway i haven't really done erlang uh, myself so this is just based on what i've seen at you know conference talks right um but it does pattern matching as well. Yeah, lots of languages does that. There is, there's even some talk of having pattern matching uh, in C Sharp next version again, I think. Right. So there's discussion going on about that. So this is something that comes from the functional world, but isn't particularly, doesn't have to be tied to only functional la- languages. It's just a way to express, a, if you will, a very, a very, um, flexible case statement, switch case statement, basically. When we were uh, we were at NDC, we were talking about, um, uh, um, with Brian Hunter, about, talking, uh, yes. about um, uh, sort of removing uh, pitfalls and how, you know, in an object-oriented world, you have to do so much plugging of holes, you know, like checking for nulls and all of that stuff. That uh, quite frankly, we'd be a lot better off if the language and compiler just did that for us. But, but of course, it's a condition. You know, if you have a null, you have to do something about it, and that condition isn't always the same. So it can't be sort of just baked in. But, but then you have you know these functional languages that just don't have these problems. Sure. So I'm wondering what we can do. You know, if you take the top five big problems or gotchas of C sharp or object oriented programming in general. And say, you know, these are the where 90% of your bugs are happening or 50% of your bugs or whatever it is come from these top five things. How can we find better patterns to use that can we even find better patterns to use in C Sharp or an object-oriented language that uh, help us avoid those at all costs? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's true. Null, null reference exceptions are probably the number one basic reason for errors out on the internet. So um, I don't know if you know, you probably heard the story, but Sir Tony, Sir Tony Hall, who invented the null pointer back in the 65, I think, something like that, he uh, later came out and said that was probably his billion-dollar mistake. Yeah, um, I was going to say, let's kill that guy. Let's go back in <laughs> no, time to kill that guy. <laughs> I meant it is, as a joke. <laughs> he, he is a knight, uh, so obviously he did something right. Uh, yeah. No, he, he was very honest and came out and said that was a bad idea. And the reason why he actually did that back then was because it was so easy. So it felt stupid not to do it. Yeah. All the other languages that came after that just copied the null reference, the idea of the null reference. But there's no reason you have to do that in a, in a programming language at all. And it's not particularly tied to 
functional programming versus object-oriented programming. It's just that the mainstream object-oriented programming languages that we have today, Java and c and even C++, they all have this notion of a null pointer. It doesn't have to. There's nothing in the paradigm that says you have to have null, and there's nothing in, in functional that says you can't have null. It's just that that's just the way it turned out. So you could very well in, envision a, an object-oriented language that doesn't have null. It's just that it's too late for C-sharp, unfortunately, because it's there now and it would be, you know, breaking, a breaking change to remove yeah. null. Um, but, but, but that said, getting back to the question, to, to your question, Carl, was that, um, what can we do then to, to avoid it? So one of the things what, that we can do is we can learn from functional programming and the way that they deal with the concept of a thing not being there is something called a maybe. So what they do there, they explicitly oh, say... Oh, sweet Lord. Maybe? <laughs> it's called maybe. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's just my initial reaction. <laughs> I no, I think that... Uh, oh, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll sure. tell you what I was well, thinking later. Uh-oh. <laughs> so, so the idea about a maybe is just that you say, instead of everything potentially being nullable that's that's the problem you have in in c-sharp for example is that on unless you have unless you have something that returns a value type like an integer or boolean almost anything that is return value or, or an input value that flows through whatever program that you're running at the moment is a reference so it might be null so what would you typically do then in f sharp for example or in haskell is you say well if there is a possibility that this function can't return a value, then instead of just saying that implicitly it may not be there, we say instead you get a value back that is either something or it's none. So it's either some or none. There are two states it can be in. Okay. And those, sta those states are mutually exclusive. So either you get something back that is sum, and the sum then you know contains a value, or it's none, and none doesn't really contain. You anything. know that makes a lot of sense now that you explain it. But my first thought was, <laughs> maybe I have a I have time a hell of a time with null. Now I got to test for two states. What are you crazy? Right, but but you do that, but that, but but in in a sense that is the that is that is true. You have to test for two states, but then you know because you can see that the function that you're calling is statically typed mm -hmm. to return a maybe so you can see that you, that you have you can explicit you can explicitly see from the um, return value that this is what you need to to deal with that you need to deal with both cases and this also means by corollary that if you have a function that doesn't return a maybe you are guaranteed that it's going to return a value and it's never going to return null got does it. that make sense yeah yeah i got it well hey richard yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yep. It's time to fix a bug in our show where laughed is not tested for a null reference. <laughs> 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 was that a blue That was a blue screen. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's actually time to give away a music to code by DVD and CD set. And that's a set of 25-minute Pomodoro-sized, quiet and groovy instrumentals specifically designed to promote focus. It'll get you into a state of flow and keep you there. .NET Rocks fans are being more productive with music to code by, so see what all the fuss is about at mtcb.pwop. That's pwop.com. All right, buddy, who's our winner? 
Today's winner, picked at random from all the members of the .NET Rocks fan club, is Alexei Malkov. Ah, congratulations, Alexei. Yes. I'll clap for you, sir. And Alexei just won the Music to Code by CD with the first three tracks. There are seven now, and uh, or as of this recording anyway. And also a Blu-ray DVD video, which is about two-something hours long on the making of Music to Code by. So congratulations, Alexei. And uh, if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December, we give away $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. But you got to sign up to win. We also like to ask our guests, of course, Mark, if you had 5000 U.S. to spend on technology today... What would you buy? Hmm. So given that our current topic is less is more, and then I'm not really much of a gadget person anyway, I would probably, I don't know, can you, I probably wouldn't get something in the three dimensions. Maybe, can we buy something in the time dimension instead? Can I get, Wait, can I have I more got time? It. I got it. You <laughs> can pay to have a, a dumpster come to your house and take a $5,000 worth of crap away. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not sure my wife would be happy about that though. <laughs> No, no, yeah, time, we've had this uh, discussion before, and, and here's what you do, you hire a personal assistant, and now you have more time. Ah, well, then I have to spend time actually training that personal assistant. True. Uh, I think... I think I would probably just sit off, off some time and say, well, instead of, you know, hunting for something that can actually pay me, then I'll just, you know, use that money and then, oh, you know, like sit paid- down and do a, a dump of my brain because there I have so much stuff that I need to record and write and so on. I see. So sort of like yeah. paying yourself on a vacation. Yeah. I, I I don't know if you would call that a vacation, but that's <laughs> that's probably what I would do with it anyway. That would still be sort of, it. It would produce tech in the sense it would produce more articles that no one reads and so on. But, yeah. <laughs> oh come on! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's a very in, innovative use of the five thousand dollar prize. Um, let's find out how many listeners would opt for that if they won. Uh, let us know. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I also know you're a sucker for experiences. So, you know, for five grand, you could probably dig out a reservation to El Celer de Canroca, you know, flight, hotel, and that might, that might be. I don't know if it, it counts as tech though. Hey, well, you'd be on a plane. There's technology on a plane. Well, these guys are serious about their molecular gastronomy too. Like this food is pretty technical. Absolutely. Molecular gastronomy. Okay, but there's going to be a that, foam involved. <laughs> oh yeah. Now, the, <laughs> now, these days, the small powders, foams, foams are just such so last century. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's it's powders, and then currently they're going into fermentation. Fermentation is the new thing at the moment, really. How how do you, you'd have to ferment ahead of time, not when you set up to cook your meal, though. However, fermenting takes oh, yeah, a this, while. It's, are there quick fermenting they, things now? No, I think they just pick it uh, out of their in the, their fermenting stockpile. Got I it. don't know. <laughs> well, it's certainly good for you to eat fermented foods. I don't know. Uh, I, it or it might be very bad. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's always you know anytime you like open up. I don't know if you've ever done it in your own fermenting, but anytime you open a jar of something that's been fermenting in your basement, you know, you just have that look of 
wincing, you know, kind of like when I tune the E string up on my Fender Strat, you know, it's like, <laughs> and I'm wincing because I know it's going to snap. Yep. Okay. So let's get back to ways that we can use uh, our favorite language, C sharp or any other object oriented language and uh, try to avoid some of the pitfalls by doing things differently. Right. So there's, there's plenty of ways. So let's just uh, conclude that whole maybe thing. The thing you can do with the maybe is actually you can port that construct back to C sharp. And I've done that lots of times and lots of other people have done that uh, lots of times. So you can search for that in, in your favorite search engine and, and find C sharp maybe and you'll find implementations of that. It's very simple. Mm. It's like one class basically. What you really need to do then is you need to agree as a team and say null is never an acceptable value. So you basically just say, well, we will never check for nulls because if there's ever a null reference exception in our code, it's a bug. It's right. a defect, mm. and we need we need to eradicate those defects uh, from our code. So yeah. instead of checking for nulls, every time you have a null reference exception, you go in and you identify why did we have that null reference exception, and then you do guard clauses. So you say, you check at the input, and you say, well, was this null? Oh, that was actually a null. Um yeah. That's not that's not legal. But if you ever get a return value that's null, then that's the that's a defect in the function or the method that returns something for you. It's not your it's not your responsibility to check for nulls. Then it's the other guy's responsibility to make certain that it never returns null to you. So I'm looking at the monad in uh, this is at uh, smelligantcode.wordpress.com, somebody's blog. The first thing that came up in a Bing Bingle search. Um, where the, the maybe class and then a, a a static class and then a struct and you're passing in, uh, what a predicate or you're passing in a type, but is it, but is it a predicate? Because they're, it's using where public struct maybe where T that's, uh, based on uh, a static class. Interesting. Hmm. So, you know, you sort of dancing around the thing, which is if we couldn't store nulls in the first place, we would never be able or need to test for them. Yeah, I got to admit, you know, that's the first thing I do when I write any method is um, set my sentries. You know, what happens if this is null? What happens if that is null? What happens if this particular condition isn't right? Blah, blah, yeah. blah. The sure. very first thing I did, and often more of that than the actual code the function does. Right, and and that is a good practice to have anyway. But what people often struggle with is, you know, you have a method and you want to return something from that method, but it's not always possible to return something from that method. So the a very common example I see is that you have a database query where you want to look up, let's say you want to look up your customer, and you have a customer ID, and then you say, well, give me the customer based on this ID. But sometimes you don't have a customer with that ID, but you don't know that until you actually hit the database mm. and perform the search. So what lots of people do is they just return null and say, well, that's now the responsibility of the caller to, to figure out whether that query was actually successful or not. Mm -hmm. And basically what we're just saying in this case is that we say, well, that's not legal, but you could change the declaration of the method and to just say it's going to return a maybe of customer. And then now you're saying to the caller explicitly that there may be a customer here, but there may also be the case that there is no customer. And it's your responsibility to 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 check whether or not there is a customer. So you would probably say, well, how does that make my calling code better? Because I still have to make the check. 
And that's true, but it doesn't make that particular calling code better. That's just the same as before. Mm. What it makes better is all the other code where that calls methods that don't return a maybe. Mm. Because now the, uh, the assumption is that you don't have to do defensive coding. You don't, because null is never a valid right. return. You always have either maybe or what you wanted. In yes. the inside, maybe. So I totally get it now. Yeah, that that's brilliant. And, and that's just, mm. that that is, you know, something you can learn from functional programming and just port back into C Sharp. So you may say, well, is that less than, less is more? It's less is, is more in the sense that, well, you do introduce another construct, but you take away the validity of, of null and you basically say, well, null is not something that we use in our code base. So I think that's taking something away. And that makes it easier to reason about your code. Yeah, fantastic. So if null references are the number one bane of an object-oriented programmer's existence, what the heck is number two? <laughs> I, <laughs> I think mutation is actually, but because the problem with mutation is that it, it makes it very difficult to reason about your code. So that's phrase, you will hear that when you talk to functional programmers all the time, the phrase yeah. reason about the code. But basically... We talked about this when we talked about being in, in, um, we talked about this when we talked about flow back when we right. talked last time. And one of the things we talked about was that when you program, when you do, when you write code, you're trying to keep and interpret the code and, and build up a mo mental model in your head that, that almost works as an interpreter. And you're trying to understand what the code does. And if that, if the code that you're looking at is very complicated and very deeply nested, it's difficult to keep track of, you know, okay, so I have input coming in here and then I'm passing that class as an input to another function, another method, I should say. And then that's probably going to pass it on to something else. And everything in that call chain is mutable. And now you're really struggling to understand, to keep all of that in your head to figure out, could it be that one place along this deep call stack that you know a flag is changing and when does that happen if it does so i you know if i remember my earlier career i spent lots of time debugging things like that where i'm trying to understand you know i have a very deep call stack lots of things are happening you know i have a big data structure that flows through things and it has lots of flags on it and so on and somewhere along this whole thing you know one flag changes from true to false yeah right and 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 then it causes some other part of the code to diverge into something a strange direction that it shouldn't have taken. And it's just very, very difficult to understand what's going on because you have no guarantees that things are as as you think they are. And I would say that debugging tools that, you know, address that, like the watch window and locals, um, those kinds of things, they they worked better when we had top-down programming. Not so much now. Not only is everything object-oriented, things are hidden in higher hierarchies of objects, but you have stuff that's happening in real time and stuff that's happening on other threads. And oh my sure, God, yeah. how on earth do I, how, do, how on earth do I debug that? And it's, yeah, it's difficult. But then again, if you can re, factor your code in such a way that you don't really have those sort of sorts of problems you will also discover that a lot of the tools that you had to rely on before in order to understand what was going on become much less relevant to you so i, I wouldn't say that i never use a debugger but i rarely use a debugger because when you can 
when you figure out how to decompose your things into small chunks that you can reason about, often what happens is you just look at your code a couple of times and then you say, huh, okay, I get why it's doing that because it's wrong. It, I mean, it's clearly here on my screen. I don't have to understand a lot of stuff. So if you couple that with test-driven development or in many functional programming languages have this idea called a REPL, a redeval print loop, where you can just, you know, you just pull your code in and, and just execute it in a sort of command line and you just, you know, input some values and then you see what it returns and mm -hmm. then, you know, you just you just go back and forth like that. And and, and when you do that, it turns out that the debugger is not particularly interesting anymore. Um, I do use it from time to time, but it's not, you know, it's not my main tool. Well, you know, and like I said, it's it was made for a different time. Absolutely, you know, those debugging it tools. It was made for the time where you had to have mutation-based programming because that was what your pro what your that was what your CPUs could do and what your memory could utilize. Uh, but now we have so much memory that we don't really know what we are going to use it for anyway. And now we have a different situation. Um, so. Yeah. We had tools that, that fit well back then, but now we don't have to cling to those tools anymore because we have different ways of approaching some problems, at least, that make some of those uh, tools less relevant. Yeah, so, I, so I really think the dynamic language wave that I think in a lot of ways, the dynamic language is around for a long time, but Ruby on Rails guys really kicked off this. You make dynamic languages work by building good test harnesses. And that changed a lot of thinking around software. Like that propagated everywhere. When I think about the, the wave of unit testing and the, the larger testing infrastructure, it came from there. And that's sort of a learning. And, uh, and the, the fact that systems got faster, right? We got more sophisticated compilers, more sophisticated dev environments that suddenly part of our build process was this whole suite of tests. I mean, dynamic kicked that off, but it went everywhere. Sure, yeah. But it, and it makes sense that it started with dynamic. I, I actually think that, as far as I understand, Kent Beck, who, who coined the idea about test-driven development, I think he was working in Smalltalk um, at the time. And that, that's also a dynamic language. Yeah. And when you don't have a compiler that can give you any sort of feeling of safety, whether or not what you're doing is correct or not, you tend to want to be able to get that, that feeling of safety from somewhere else. And it turned out that unit test was actually a pretty good way to do that. And then it turns out that even in statically typed languages like in C Sharp or in or Java, for example, um, there's still a lot of things that can go wrong even if it compiles. So um, so we we took the idea that come uh, that came from small talk and they came from Ruby and then said, well, we can actually use this over here. Uh, but you will see some functional languages like F sharp, for example, but also Haskell, they do lots less, uh, they do a lot less testing because the type system is much stronger. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit more difficult to get particularly your Haskell programs to compile. Um, but there's al almost this saying that if you can actually get your Haskell program to compile, it probably also works. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've heard that about Erlang as well. It's like Erlang's constraints are such that if it runs at all, it's <laughs> going to run just fine. Absolutely. Right, that, that may be the case. So I'm, I'm just, I'm exaggerating a little bit here to, pro to prove a point. It's not that you don't need to, to do testing of functional languages at yeah. all. You, you will. But my experience is that you can get by with a lot fewer tests in F sharp, for example, because there's just a lot of things that the compiler will not let you do. For example, assign null to, to anything or mutate things unless you explicitly choose to do that. So that's just, you know, makes things easy. That just makes things a lot easier. Languages that resist accidental behaviors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, so there's a lot of those things that that I've been thinking about whether you can, what can you actually remove from a language? So we've talked about, well, we started with the go-to statement mm-hmm. and we talked a little bit about null pointers and we've talked about, um, we've talked about mutability. That's a lot, that's, there are lots of other things that you can actually remove from a language uh, or you can just not use them. Mm. Um, reference equality, for example, is one thing. Um, the, yeah, the, default, the default equality behavior in .NET is reference equality. So if you don't override equality, then two objects are considered to be equal to each other if they are the same reference, if they have the same pointer. Um, and that just makes things a lot, it, it makes it very difficult to compare objects because right. often what you really have is you have two objects that may represent the same data, but they are two different references. Exactly. And then you, and then you compare those and, and .NET just says, nope, they're not, they're not the same. Right. So you have to and override it, the equals operator. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and it just turns out that again, the, you can do that, but it's not the default. Right. Whereas in, in F sharp, for example, the default is that it has what's called structural equality by default. So if you create a type, a record or a tuple or a discriminated union, those are functional data types in F sharp. If you create values of those things, they have structural equality by default. So you can opt out of that, but that's the default. Is that because they're value types, basically? So, like structures? Yeah. They're, they're still reference types. If you look at how a record compiles in F sharp, for example, it actually compiles to class. Mm. Um, but one of the reasons is that it's it's a much saner approach when you have immutable data because if you have things that never change, then you know that if you have if they have the same constituent values inside of them, they're probably the same. Right. It's a little bit different with objects because if you have an object that has mutable data, so it can change, what you could then have is you could have two objects that just accidentally when you compare them they have all the same constituent values inside of them but then you know the next time one of them may change afterwards so you would think you would do you would be able to do the comparison and they would say well these two are identical but then if they're they're mutable they may diverge later on but you thought they were identical do do you see what i mean absolutely sure so 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 the idea about immutable immutability kind of is the the fundamental requirement for making structural equality a sane approach. So there's reason so there are good reasons why the default in .NET is reference equality, because that's really this the only sane approach you can have when everything can change. Right. But but once you take mutability away, then reference equality also starts to make much less sense. It's not important at all. Who cares? Do you do you find yourself in C sharp using more structures with um you know the read only attribute? Absolutely. That's, that's, that's basically the way that I've been writing C sharp for a long time now is, you know, every time, every time I, I do something, I start by writing those classes that are basically just, you know, they have, they take all the values in through their constructor, they assign them to read only fields. They have, you know, some getter properties so you can get at them again. And that's basically it. Maybe they have methods on them, but they are immutable. And then I just, you know, compose my, my programs uh, from that. But it's a lot of work it is because a lot of work, yeah. you have to do, you know, you have to create your constructor, you have to create your fields, you have to create the properties. You should override equals to get structural equality out of that, which also means you have to override get hash code and blah, 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 and so on. And it's just, you're probably using some code generation though to help you with that no 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 <laughs> do i don't it. 
Well, I do use code generation for now these days because now I use F sharp and it's just a one line in yeah. F sharp. Yeah. <laughs> but it that is code generation. F sharp. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so sometimes I've talked to people and they say, well, they comply, complain about this approach and they say, well, what you could do is you could just define your, um, you could just define your data types in F sharp and just expose those as a library because they're, you know, seen from C sharp, they're just classes. Hmm. Right. And they're just like that. And people go, hmm, yeah. Hmm. Because, you know, the first idea was that they say, well, we can't use F-sharp because we're C-sharp shop and we have lots of C-sharp code. And you can say, well, but you can still define your classes over here. They're not classes, they're records, but they look like classes. Isn't they are classes. That is kind yeah. of interesting. And, and, you know, that might be a good way to get your toes into a functional oh, yeah, language absolutely. without yeah. having to dive in. So, so you can take lots of those things. All of, Most of the concepts that you have in functional programming, you can backport those into C-sharp or whatever other um, object-oriented language you have. It's just that sometimes it just requires a lot of work. For example, this idea about the immutable data structure in C-sharp just requires you to build the same sort of class over and over again. Uh, but it's definitely possible to do. I love it. Give me more. Give me more. What do you got? <laughs> what else you got, Mark Seaman? Well, well, then we can begin to think about inheritance. So we've known from, and this is this is nothing. This has nothing to do with a, with a functional programming, but we've known since the Gang of Four wrote the Design Patterns book back in 1994, and basically the premise of the whole book is that you should favor composition over inheritance. Right. So already, you know, back in 1994, it was a known thing that inheritance was evil. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 we, and I think we probably have to be a little bit more sophisticated here and say inheritance is evil in all those languages that don't have multiple inheritance. Mm. Because every time you inherit from something in a single inheritance language, you are locking yourself away from all sorts of other ways that you can combine your, your types. And yeah. That doesn't happen if you have multiple inheritance. You have other problems with multiple inheritance. Yeah, so I was just going to say, multiple inheritance has its own set of evils. Sure. You know, I, I, in thinking about this, you can understand why um, single inheritance works if you're building the .NET framework. You know, if you're building up shapes and colors and, you know, all GDI objects or, or that kind of stuff. But, you know, when you're talking about data constructs that you use in your everyday apps and CRUD apps mm -hmm. and stuff, it just there it just completely falls apart sure yeah so the, the idea about object orientation or, or the idea the idea about inheritance was never as far as i understand it that it should be a hierarchy of data but rather it's it was a way to introduce polymorphism into your program the idea about you have you have a contract if you will that describes how an object you know an object is data with behavior mm. Uh, and you have this abstract contract that describes how that object, how that data and behavior can be used. Um, but you don't know exactly how it's, it's going to be implemented. So you can replace one implementation for another one. That's, that was one of the, the uh, ideas. If you go back and read Bertrand Meyer's book, Object Oriented Software Construction, yeah. uh, that was one of, of his main goals of doing object orientation with Eiffel was that, that he wanted to be able to, to say, here's a contract that the client can talk to, but then you can actually replace the implementation afterwards. And that was a way to, to create reusable software mm -hmm. because one of the problems they had back there in the eighties was that they, it was difficult to create reusable software that was packaged in binary form. What they 
had been doing so far was to just ship source code, and then you took, for example, the C++ source code, and you just you know compiled that into your own C++ code. And what they really wanted to do here was to, to introduce this idea about encapsulation, where you didn't have to know the internals of whatever it was that you were talking about. You just had to know how to use it. Um, so that was one of the ma- motivations of doing optic orientations mm-hmm. originally, as far as I, I read it. I was about 13 or 14 back then, so <laughs> it wasn't really that I was partaking in that discussion uh, as <laughs> such, but that's just my reading of the history yeah. after the fact. <laughs> um, but, we've known, but we've known for a long time that inheritance is not a particularly good way of solving the reuse problem. Um, we have this idea about composition where we can say, well, instead of having you know an abstract base class, we have this thing called an interface and um, and we can use that we can compose classes that use interfaces and then we can put interfaces together or we can put classes that implement those interfaces and we can compose those together so that they collaborate according to those interfaces instead and that's actually another way of solving the same problem so i've been doing that for the last mm, 10 years at least and i've found that there is no problem that can be solved with um, with inheritance that you can't solve with composition yeah. or either or interfaces. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there are but there are problems you can solve with composition that you can't solve with with inheritance. Right. All right. Real quick, let's talk about reflection. Sure. All right. <laughs> yeah. So reflection is uh, is um, one thing that is. This is one of the things that I'm speculating a little bit about because I don't think you can avoid or do without reflection in C-sharp, but there are languages out there that have this, um, that are what we call homo-iconic. And a language that's homo-iconic means that data and programs are represented with the same data structures. Mm-hmm. So data is code and code is data. Mm-hmm. And and you see that with, um, and I have to s- scare you a little bit here, but that's what Lisp is all about. Um, and I, I know you probably don't li- like Lisp there very much. I'm, I don't really have much experience with Lisp uh, either. But you see a, a modern variant of that called Clojure, uh, which is most mostly based on the um, JVM platform, which yeah. is a yeah, which is a Lisp variant. But one of the things you can do when you have code that is expressed in data form is that you can have macros that interpret how your code uh, is. Um, is created and then changes or ref- somehow f- it doesn't reflect on it, but it, you can just query your code and try to understand what it is that it's doing and see, you know, you can count how many if statements do I have. You typically don't have many if statements in Clojure, but let's say, well, how many keywords or how many occurrences do I have of a particular function? Isn't, and then you can start start to count that if you think that's interesting. Isn't, <laughs> isn't curl a, a, a homo-iconic language? Curl? I don't know. Yeah, every once in a while I see stuff, you know, here, just do this curl script. And I'm like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know curl. Yeah. But, uh, so, 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 but that was just a speculation of my part saying, well, if you have a language that's home iconic, it's, it looks like they don't need reflection. So reflection is this API that we put on top of whatever else that we have mm. because we need to have this meta programming ability. Yeah. So you have that in C sharp and you have that in lots of other languages because you need meta programming. But if you have programs where where you can just query the program because program the program itself is just an, another collection of data, then you don't need a specialized reflection feature on top of your language. It's just the language is 
queryable, if you will, by, by itself. So this is not something you can do with C-sharp, mm. uh, but this is something that will be built in a language. So sometimes I'm just speculating a little right. bit and saying, well, what could you do if you want to build the perfect language with the minimal set of things that you need but you still want it to be you know powerful and flexible what can you what would you have to have in that language and what could you do without well you know mark now you got Roslyn, so go for it <laughs> <laughs> well but Roslyn is, is still not a, a homo iconic thing no 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 but you could you could possibly do something better maybe that you know, maybe, but maybe. Uh, uh, and Roslyn is um, targeted at C sharp and Visual Basic. Right. And if if you if you know the F sharp compiler is obviously written in F sharp. So uh, if you're interested in, in in those things, you can do well. You can query F sharp with F sharp. That's absolutely possible. Yeah. But it's still based on well, Roslyn is a compiler, so that's based on actually interpreting the source code and then the resulting abstract syntax right. syntax tree, as far as I understand. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, if it, <laughs> but that's if not it a be, it's not a runtime thing, though. No, it could, if it could be done in C sharp, you you could probably do it in Roslyn, but it doesn't it doesn't seem like you can. Well, it's just about we're just about out of time here, but uh, I I see that you have some Pluralsight courses and you've got a, a blog post on these uh, language features. We're gonna link all of those on the website netrocks.com. Sounds good. All right, thanks, Mark. It's been great. Sure. It's always a pleasure to be on. Yes, great to talk to you, and we'll speak to you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a